Welcome to the Equipping Podcast. My name is Nathan, and this is definitely more of my radio voice. <laughs> <laughs> you should have seen his face as he said that. <laughs> uh, you know what happens a lot of my life is I just walk around and Karen just laughs at my face. <laughs> He's not wrong. <laughs> it's like hair, Karen. She's like... <laughs> Uh, that's awesome. Hey, uh, today we want to totally deconstruct your faith. <laughs> Way to get him excited, Nathan. Uh, this is going to be awesome. No, we're uh, we're talking with James Bryan Smith, who wrote A Good and Beautiful God, Good and Beautiful Life, Good and Beautiful, everything's good and beautiful, and other smaller works like Embracing the Love of God, and he's at Friends University and Renovare Institute, and it's just like an all-around awesome dude. So today we're going to be talking about dominant images of God that people have in the American evangelical church and why a lot of those are wrong. So be challenged. I am excited this week because we have a new friend with us via Zoom, which I mean, you know, everybody's making friends on Zoom nowadays. Yeah, but they can't see him, so... I can attest that he's here with us <laughs> and is in his own awesome studio over at Friends University. I'm assuming that's where you are. Is that right? That is where I am. There yes. you go. Where is Friends University? Wichita, Kansas. Man, you're in the breadbasket right there. Mm-hmm. Midwest, farmland, love that. Dorothy, Toto, the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's exactly right. That's yeah. Fancy. Nice cultural reference there. James Brian Smith. We're just going to call him Jim, if that's okay. Please. He is a professor at Friends University. He's also part of the Renovare organization, which is a series of people that get together to talk about spiritual formation. Mostly has kind of a West Coast flair. Am I right about that? Well, we were birthed here in Wichita, Kansas, right here at Friends University. Oh, and no then, way. Then Richard moved the organization to Denver. We have people all everywhere now. Oh, cool. That's awesome. Yeah, it's, we're all over. I love that. And what, what is the stated purpose of Renovare? So it's a Latin word means to renew. Richard Foster back in the late 80s, long time ago, he felt that the church didn't have a lot of breadth to it. He had this vision that if Christians today could learn from other great traditions within the church, like the contemplative, evangelical, social justice, incarnational, he thought if we could just broaden the view for people, That was the vision that he had, and then we collaborated, Richard and I, together and created a a spiritual formation workbook, which is a way for small groups to kind of experience those different traditions. And so that was sort of the the genesis of the ministry, but it's basically been trying to bring a, a broader view of Christian spirituality to the churches. That's awesome, man. Well, I first learned about Jim through a mutual friend of ours, Steve Porter, who we've had on this podcast before. Because I was working on my dissertation and was looking at different ways that people image God, and Steve was like, hey, you need to check out this book called A Good and Beautiful God. And I was like, well, I mean, that title just sounds awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. And so I checked that out, and, and then I realized, oh, this is part of the apprenticeship series, Good and Beautiful God, Good and Beautiful Life, Good and Beautiful Community is a mm-hmm. three-part... A fourth is coming. A fourth is coming. What's it going to be called? Uh, the Good and Beautiful You. Oh, mm. nice. Discovering the person Jesus created you to be. It'll be out in May. There you go. Sweet. Two. May of 22. Check it out. 
anyway, we I started moving through this stuff, and then some of our small groups here at Watermark started going through it and just really saw just cool fruit that the Holy Spirit mm. was using those resources to produce in people. That's how I learned about Jim, and then I started looking at a handful of his books, including Embracing the Love of God and other things that he's done on the narrative of Scripture, recasting in our minds really a biblical view of who God is, the character of God. He also has a podcast called Things Above, which is based on Colossians 3. Mm -hmm. That is, set your mind on things above. (laughs) And so... That's been a really helpful tool as well. I would definitely recommend you guys listen to that. It's not long, but he basically is just doing a consistent thought on God, on the kingdom of God, on things above. You call it, I think, uh, mind discipleship. Yeah, Greg Boyd used that term, and I stole it from Greg. There you go. He was on our show, and I said, you know, this seems important to me. He goes, oh, it is. He goes, mind discipleship is the most important discipleship and the most neglected. And I went, what did you say? (laughs) Mind discipleship discipleship. Yeah, that's cool. That's what it's about. Yeah, so it's a renewal of your mind, right? I mean, Paul talks about that in Romans 12. The reason I wanted to have Jim on the podcast is because while his story is obviously unique to him, I think his story will resonate with a lot of us, all of us uh, listening to this. And that is confronting narratives that, you know, he was believing about God and come to grips with the fact that, hey, some of these might be off. Jim, why don't you just share your story for a minute? Tell us the tradition you were brought up in, how you were formed, and then what the Spirit has been doing to transform you. Yeah, thanks, Nathan. Well, it's wonderful to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. So yeah, my story is I grew up in a pretty liberal Methodist church. Like the senior pastor didn't really believe that Jesus was the Son of God. So Mm, yeah, that's liberal. We heard messages about being good people. And so my view of God was that God was distant and probably not nice. You know, church was very serious, even though they were not committed to scripture and so forth. But that was the vibe I got because the minister had the black robe. And so as a little kid, I thought, well, God is serious stuff. But I was felt this emptiness when I was in high school, despite my life being really great. There was no reason for it. There wasn't any loss or brokenness or anything. But I went on a search and ended up meeting a guy who helped walk me through the scriptures. He was a part-time street evangelist. We read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. And by the end of that experience, I thought, Jesus seems really beautiful. And I didn't have exactly those words, but I was drawn to Jesus. And so I, I gave my life to Christ. And then when I went to college, I got involved in a campus ministry program, parachurch ministry. And one of the guys that was a leader in that group, he heard my story, how I came to faith in Jesus and was pretty serious about it. I mean, I wore a fish necklace and everything. I was, I was down <laughs> with being, but that was about all I did. And I was just barely going to church again because I wasn't, didn't have a great church experience. But anyway, so he uh, heard my story and he said, well, it's pretty nice, but you're not saved. And I went, I, what is saved? We didn't talk about saved in the progressive Methodist church. Mm. All I knew is I liked Jesus a lot and I prayed to him and he really transformed my life. So he led me through a way of framing the gospel that basically was God is really mad at you, but Jesus took your beating. And if you confess him as Lord, then you can avoid eternal damnation. And, you know, he had a tract and everything, so he seemed legitimate. So I thought, well, if that's Christianity, then okay. So that was my step back into it. And then I started going to a church that was pretty heavily Pentecostal. And I got a lot of good things from that experience, but I also did still feel like God was mad. Like, you know, God the Father is mad. Jesus is nice, but 
So I had this Trinity deficit disorder is the way I like to put it. I had the Trinity <laughs> at odds with each other. And so then I went to French University as a student and Richard Foster was my professor and he had written Celebration of Discipline. So this was 1981. Richard wasn't hugely famous. The book was doing well, but he was just my professor. I didn't know he was a big deal. But yeah. so he was teaching me the, the spiritual disciplines and I took my sort of angry God and then I took the spiritual disciplines and then the disciplines were ways for me to make the angry God less angry if I prayed enough or fasted enough or solitude or you know, the big 12 disciplines in Richard's great book. So I became the poster child for celebration of discipline. Like I will do all of these disciplines to get this God to like me. Then I went off to seminary and uh, Henry Nowen was really helpful to me. And even Henry's books kept pushing me that there was another way of looking at God. And I was very drawn to that. But after I got out of seminary, I was ordained and then went into ministry. And early nineties, Brennan Manning and I became friends. And so we were having lunch one day and, and he just looked at me and he just said, you don't believe God loves you, Jim. And I was like, well, yes, I do. And he goes, no, you don't. And I thought, I think he's right. Like he, it spoke <laughs> to the core of my soul that he's I didn't really mail. believe that. So that took me on a journey over the next several years of spending time with Brennan, listening to his talks, reading his books and rereading Henry Nowen and, and learning to understand that we are the beloved that's how I ended up writing Embracing the Love of God. It was that journey over several years where I myself was discovering that God really does love us. So, so that was a big turning point because I probably would have left ministry if that hadn't happened. I was miserable, really. Yeah. I was going through the motions of ministry, but I, you know, I, I didn't have any joy. Yeah. So that was, that was huge. Brennan was, was a big part of that. Why do you think it is that I'm thinking about a, a Baylor study that I referenced in my research. They did a comprehensive study on how people image God. The dominant image of God in the Baylor study among evangelical Americans was high involvement, very present, high power. So, like, he's not just there. He's also, like, super able to do whatever he wants. Low benevolence. And so it's like this very present God who's really powerful and he's upset. Yeah. Or, you know, something like that. How do you think we got here? Yeah. Well, that's a great question, Nathan. Well, I, yeah, I refer to that as the God of Sting. It's the God who's watching you every move you make, every value you break, every breath you take. He is watching. I'll be watching. Awesome. <laughs> he's watching and he's mad mm. and he's going to, he wants to get you. So yeah, I'm, I'm aware of that study as well. It was a fascinating study from Baylor. I think there are a number of reasons. One is, is that we don't quite know what to do with the Old Testament. And mm. so it appears that the Old Testament, we have a God who's really mad and then he gets nicer in the new. So one is that. The second thing is the psychological phenomenon known as projection, which is that we take our human experience and project that onto God. So in our human experience, we have parents, first of all, who are judging us, watching us, correcting us, punishing us. And then we get teachers and coaches and bosses. And so we're very familiar with someone evaluating our performance and meeting out punishment or blessing. Yeah, on authority the basis figures. Yeah. So God's just a really big version of that. Yeah. We can fool our coach or our teacher a little, but this God is, again, watching every move yeah. we make. So we can't escape that. So projection, I think, is the other reason. A third one, I think, is control. If God is judging my performance, then in some sense, I get to control God. Yep. 
Because if I do good, he has to bless me. If I do bad, well, he has to punish me. But either way, I'm in control. Whereas grace takes away any kind of control. Grace, it just blows the doors off of our own sense of control. You see that in like the prodigal son story where the elder brother just, hey, wait a minute. Mm -hmm. You owe me. And then the last one is judgment because it allows us to stand in the seat of judgment and Christians have become excellent at it. Mm-hmm. You know, that Barna study where the top three things that non-Christians think about Christians are, number one, we're judgmental, second, hypocritical, and third, that we hate gay people. Clearly, we're very good at judgment yeah. and mm-hmm. that's what the non-believing world sees in us. So I think those negative views of God in a way contribute to it because if my God is mean, I can be mean. Yeah, we feel if we project God as angry and judgmental, then we feel justified when we feel angry or judgmental and going, hey, I'm good to sit in a seat of judgment over you. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, that gets super crazy, dysfunctional. How else does that exhibit itself in Christianity today? So if we have that false view of God that he's angry, maybe that'll affect our attitudes, but what does it look like and why is it so detrimental? Well, I think another way it does manifest itself is this sort of performance view of what Christianity is, that Christianity is a religion. Religion is based on the the things that I do to appease this God. What do I need to do? So, for example, I remember when I was teaching what became the good and beautiful God, I had a guy in my focus group, and he he grew up in a pretty legalistic church. and, And he told me, he said, my mom would drill into my head when I was a little kid. Like, if you don't go to church, you are disappointing God. God is so disappointed in you. And he said, I've carried that into adulthood. I still have that feeling. And so we talked about, and why do we go to church? Do we go to church to appease God or do we go to worship? We go to be a part of the body of Christ. We go to hear the word spoken and preached and we sing our songs. And that's why we go that it isn't a matter of God liking us more or less if we go or don't go. And I remember uh, it was kind of funny because he called me one day. It was a Sunday afternoon. He said, Jim, I want, you know, I think I've had a breakthrough. I said, what's that? He said, I didn't go to church today. I said, okay. (laughs) He goes, because I had 103 temperature. Oh, wow. And I knew I shouldn't go. I didn't go. This was before COVID or anything. He said, but I didn't go and I felt okay. I felt like God was okay. And it was just interesting that we even had to have that discussion. So I think that's a part of it, Karen, is this idea that there's performance, that that's what this is about, is one way it manifests itself, certainly. And then we see it in all the ways that we feel distant from God Mm -hmm. if we haven't. You know, it's the God who loves me and he loves me not on the basis of my performance. You know what's crazy to me? When you understand the world the Bible was written in, what you see is a deeply pagan culture. There's lots of different gods. There's lots of different ways that those gods are interacting with other gods and then also with people. And you see at the heart of all of that are these transactional type relationships that people have with their deities. Like you require this of me, I need to appease you. And so I will, whether it's participating in certain worship rites or certain temple Uh, liturgical stuff or certain, like on the extreme end, like child sacrifice, right? Right. You have given us your children through the seed, and so now we give you our children. And it's very transactional. And the more I see a lot of people's patterns of interacting, patterns of relating to God, I mean, I saw this in my life for a long time. It was there, and I didn't even know it. 
and now I'm more aware of it, but I see that and I'm like, oh, this is like paganism with a Christian name on it. Mm-hmm. Like we're trying to appease our deity. And that's so ironic to me because that's just, that's the heart of paganism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, mm. oh, we're a bunch of pagans. Yeah. We just like slap a Christian sticker on it. Yeah, I think religion at its most primitive base, and we see this in looking at, at archaeology and so forth, is the idea that if I do certain things, I can get the deity to be in my favor. Right. And that's important because I need fertility in terms of crops and all of these things. So again, we're at the mercy of forces bigger than us. Right. So if there's something I can do that can control that for my good, I'll do it, even up to something as awful mm. as, as sacrificing yeah. a, someone else. So primitive religions have those. And then you have in the ancient Near Eastern culture, which is where the people of Israel were birthed, but you look at the other gods in those cultures, and it was very much a wrathful god who yeah. had to be appeased. So really, even though people look at stories in the Old Testament and think, well, this is terrible, and rightly so. I mean, they are hard for us. But if you put it in context to the other religions in the ancient Near Eastern world, it was a big breakthrough. That was huge. To see God as a God who wanted, I mean, Abraham's call was to be the father of all nations. Yeah. All nations. Yeah a light to the Gentiles, a light to the rest of the world. And, and you see this concept in Hebrew of, of hesed, which is steadfast love. This is a God of steadfast love. Yeah. You see this throughout the Psalms. So that was very counter as Israel was discovering who is this God. And then we get to the New Testament. And I love that verse in Hebrews and says, you know, in the olden days, God's former times, God spoke to us through the prophets, but in the present, he speaks to us through the Son. Yeah. So Jesus becomes the ultimate manifestation of the character of God. Yeah. That's why I say to my students, if you ask the question, what is God like? There's one answer, Jesus. That's good. Jim, I can really relate to your story, even as you were talking about when you were younger and you were sitting across the table from somebody and they like called you out, hey, you don't believe that God loves you. Nathan's that person for me. I sat in a room with Nathan. I'm not, like, I'm not Brendan Manning, though. Let's be, yeah. let's be clear but about that. But he was that. like, hey, you don't believe that God loves you. I was like, are you sure? And then he had me go read The Good and Beautiful God, which I really appreciate. As I was sitting here thinking, we've each said something to the effect of like, I didn't even realize or I didn't even know this was going on. And so are there questions that we can ask? Um, how can our listeners self-assess to kind of figure out if these narratives are playing a primary role in their life? Mm, that's a great question. And here's the thing that was accidental for me, Karen, in the, in the process of writing The Good and Beautiful God. I wrote the whole series in the context of focus groups, like real people. And The Good and Beautiful God wasn't even in my mind when I started the curriculum. I just assumed people had decent views of God. And what I discovered in the process of going through with people is, wow, people have really toxic views of God. And Dallas Willard had said to me, you know, you can't plow around that. If people have bad views of God, spiritual formation not only won't help them, it might make them worse. So actually, it was only later that I began writing um, The Good Meaningful God. And in doing so, I was able to take narratives that I heard people saying. Good. And so uh, the book, as you know, is it consists of, of a false narrative and then Jesus narrative. So every chapter has this view of God that's false and then Jesus' view, which is in contrast. Mm -hmm. And one of the beautiful accidents, I'm not smart enough to have known this, it just happened accidentally, (laughs) was when people read the book, they get to look at the false narrative and it's not threatening. Like I don't say like Brennan did to me or Nathan did to you. (laughs) You get to read the narrative and go, hey, do I think that? Mm. Do I really think God is like that? Is God an angry judge who's poised to punish me? Do I think that? 
So I'm reading the book and it's not like someone's got a finger at me, but I can go, do I? And then maybe I do. So it's pedagogically is the fancy word. The way that the teaching works actually is more helpful to people because they get to arrive at the conclusion. Yeah, you're leading people into Mm self-discovery. Yeah. You're you're like, hey, ask this question of yourself without presuming to know the answer. Yeah. Yeah. That's good, man. That's really good. And, you know, not everybody's there. Like my wife, for example— grew up in a church with a really healthy God narrative. Yep. And so it was very strange in my journey as I'm going through that. And she would just look at me puzzled and go, well, you really thought God was angry? I know, like, you right? really thought, because she didn't. Yep. And uh, sometimes she's like, should I have? Like, yeah. <laughs> you have a much cooler story than I do <laughs> with your conversion. And then Brennan, you know, have all these, you have this great story. I don't. <laughs> and I say, hon, look, you've always walked closely with God. You, you've always trusted Jesus and the God that he reveals. So I would rather be a cradle Christian who had the right narratives than someone who had to get it later. Yeah, right. I had to figure it out the hard way. Well, that's that's really helpful, even hearing like, hey, how your wife grew up versus how you grew up. And so much of where I was formed, and I think everyone is formed, is in their childhood. And so it's worth taking a step back and asking, how was I raised? What were people speaking to me about God? How did I view him? What was my church saying? And so some of those things might also help us. Yeah. And in my experience, in my research, it's always a big mixed bag. It's rarely ever just this one thing, yep. you know? I mean, it's a attachment environments, it's parents, it's coaches, it's teachers, it's experiences in youth groups and, and one-off experiences that people have that were deeply formative. And then not only that, because our our image of God is not by itself. It's also bumping up against other people's images of God. And that's why it's so important that each person know that it's unique to you. And that's why I think, Jim, it's great that you're pushing out resources to people to go, hey, you consider this. How do you relate to God? How do you image him? Yeah. Well, I love what you're saying, Nathan, too, because Dallas Willard, he's, he he would always say funny things, not in meaning to be funny, but he, he said, uh, you know, people pick up beliefs like our clothing picks up lint. Like yeah. he just, they just sort of happen and you go, oh, where did I get that lint? And you just sort of take it off. Like, well, that's what happens. You don't know it's happening, but you're picking up beliefs along the way. So I really like what you were saying there, Nathan, to, to recognize that maybe it's not direct. It's more accidental. Like, for example, not long after I was a Christian, you know, in that same time frame as I was you know, learning that I wasn't saved properly. But the, the next year, a, a friend of mine said, hey, you've got to come to my church because we're showing a Christian movie. And I was like, I didn't know Christians had movies. That's cool. But it was called A Thief in the Night. And A Thief in the Night was built on the tribulation idea. So what happens in the movie is there's all these people and there are various levels of faith. And then all of a sudden one day, a bunch of people are gone. Like this woman walks into the bathroom and her husband's razor is buzzing, but he's gone. He's raptured. And so the rest of them have to go through this this severe punishment. It's bloody and it's awful. And I sat there going, wow. But I didn't know I was young and I didn't know like this is giving me a view of God. Totally. This, This view of the end times, it was a hodgepodge of taking revelation and making it say certain things, but it scared me. What I walk away from is the God who would orchestrate the universe this way, that's a pretty scary story. Mm -hmm. So that's another example of you pick things up. You don't even know you're picking them up. It took me years and and a whole re-study of revelation Mm -hmm. to kind of— Yeah, unlearn bad ideas. Right. And that's a lot of what spiritual formation is, right? I mean, that's learning a new kingdom way. Yeah. And as Willard would say, and Foster and all those guys, there's intentionality there. These are intentional things that we have to undergo. I mean, we 
have recently released an episode with Steve Porter on the spiritual disciplines. What are they? What are they not? And for us to be intentional to go, hey, there's kind of this side of self-discovery and recognition of where you are. It's almost like a diagnostic assessment. And then mm-hmm. there is a, and then how do you uh, move forward on a practical level? At the end of the day, the thing that we're driving home right now is that there are a bunch of competing narratives about God and that it's super important not just to be able to do the right things and say the right doctrinal statements or anything like that, but it's actually examining, hey, what's going on in my inner life? How am I emotionally relating to God? Do I feel like God is angry at me? Do I feel like I have to appease him through these, you know, ritual practices or sometimes even neurotic practices? It's like, whoa, that's, you know, like your buddy who's like, man, I finally like didn't go to church (laughs) and God didn't zap me. This is so liberating. I love it, you know? I think on one hand, there's this self-discovery of like, oh, maybe God's not like that. Yeah. And then I think where we're going to head with Jim next time is to talk through like, okay, well, if God's not like that, then what is he actually like? And how do we know that? Stick around with us. We're going to keep hanging with Jim Smith from Friends University and Renovare and the author of all these awesome books. Go pick up The Good and Beautiful God. I know... I read through the first, I don't know, 30 pages or whatever. And at the end of each chapter, there was like this exercise that he has you do. And I knew I was going to love the book because the very first exercise is to go to sleep. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I was like, I love this dude. practice. <laughs> like, stop, just go to sleep. So y'all hang with us. We'll be back with Jim next time. Thanks for listening to the Equipping Podcast. If you liked it, tell your best friend, tell them to tell their best friend, and hey, so on and so forth. I have an interesting question for you. No. Who is your best friend? My husband. Oh my gosh, that's so much bull crap. I love him. <laughs> Surreal. Okay, that's good. Yeah. He's your best friend. Yeah, he's my best friend. Okay. I make him say I'm his best friend too, but mm. I don't think he does. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. That's awesome. Oh, this is the end. Yeah. Hope you liked it. Bye. Peace. <laughs>